Welcome to City Harvest Sermon Podcast. We hope you'll be blessed by the preaching of the Word by Dr. A.R. Bernard. But I'd like to build on one of the questions that was presented to me yesterday in the first service, five o'clock service yesterday. We had opportunity for Q&A. Pastor Aries ran me through a series of questions And one of them stayed with me because I felt that it is a question that so many people uh, ask, and I really didn't have the time to unpack it. It is consistent with what we've been talking about for the last two services, and it leads to what I plan to talk about tomorrow in the Sunday service. My desire is to give you understanding because what you understand can never be stolen from you. It is with you for the rest of your life. That question was simply, what and how do you navigate life? What set of principles, and my response was your values. Your values are what's most important to you. Your values are what you believe in, what you stand for, what you're willing to pay the price for, what you're willing to give your life for. Those are your values. With that in mind, I'd like to give you an expansion of the first value that I shared, because I shared four values. There are actually nine values that I subscribe to. The four that I shared yesterday was my four core values, but four of the nine values that I subscribe to. And values are important because values guide your thinking. Your purposes guide your activities, but your values guide the way you think. And what you do begins with the way you think. So I'd like to go to a text, and I'm going to give you some language, some theology to really help you uh, articulate your faith, but also understand how to allow your faith to guide you in life, to navigate life. If we can look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 8, in the English Standard Version, in the ESV, Genesis 3, 8, in the ESV, You know this is chapter 3, and all it takes is two chapters for humans to mess things up. How How many have gotten up to this point in your Bible reading? Good. Just want to make sure you're familiar with the neighborhood that we'll be in. Adam and Eve made a decision to violate the one rule that was established in the garden. The 
Edenic vision, the vision of Eden, continues to be God's vision for human society. So everything, all of history, is leading towards the restoration of that Edenic vision. The vision of Eden was to have human beings in the earth, increasing, multiplying, being fruitful, and having dominion. In other words, the objective of God was to have humanity spread over the entire globe, Eden. Eden was the model. So God put them in an environment that he wanted them to embrace, use as a model, and then spread throughout the earth for all humanity. That Edenic vision was interrupted with their disobedience. But I want to take a look at this text because it is now when God responds to this act of disobedience. Verse 8, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. The question, where are you? It's a very important question. I want to expand on that question because the question, of course, was not geographical. God was not asking where Adam was physically. In fact, the word where in the original Hebrew language is better understood as from whence come you. In other words, where are you coming from? From what perspective are you now interacting with me, answering me? What is your new world view? Adam responded from a place of fear, guilt, shame, and vulnerability. He had a radical change in the way he saw himself, the way he saw God, and the way he saw the world around him as a result of his sin. It changed him. It changed his perspective. It changed his world view. And here's the important question. God asked him, who told you you were naked? 
Adam never answered that question. Instead, he said, the woman you gave me, she offered me the fruit to eat, and I ate. So he blamed the woman. And of course, you know the story, the woman blamed the serpent. But the interesting thing is that Adam did not answer the question that was asked of him. Because the question was specific. Who told you you were naked? He passed by the question. What was God trying to bring to his attention? Simply that his new perspective on himself, God, and the world around him was informed by someone. Someone said something to him. So it raises the question, what informs your self-esteem? What informs your self-worth? What informs your vision of life, the world? What informs your vision of the future? Because whatever informs is going to shape and fashion who you are as a person, what you believe, how you respond, how you see yourself. Listen to Adam's response. I was afraid. I hid myself. It was a perspective of fear, guilt, shame, and vulnerability. A loss of power. So the question is, who informs your worldview? How you see yourself, how you see others, how you see life in general, your vision of the future. Who or what is informing that? And that's a very important question for you to ask. There are four critical questions that are four critical life questions. I want you to take them down. And then I want to talk about the life that God has called us to. The first question is the question that God asked Adam that you need to ask yourself. Where are you in life? And it's a question that you ask not just once, but you ask throughout your life again and again. Because if you're on a road going somewhere, you need to check where you are along the way to make sure that you're moving in the direction that you want to go in. Because if not, then you can arrive at the wrong place. But you have to ask the question along the way, where am I? so that if necessary, you can make some course corrections. Whether it's mid-course, quarter-course, third-course, it doesn't matter. You need to be able to make corrections along the way. So the first critical question, the very question that God asked Adam, where are you in life? I would say that you need to ask that at least once a year, especially every five years, definitely every 10 years. Do not wait till you're old 
and broken down to ask where you are. You have arrived and there's nothing you can do about it. You want to ask that question early along the way so that you can make adjustments. Because the second question relates to the first. The first question is, where are you in life? The second question is, where do you want to be in life? Where do you want to be in life? Third question, why do you want to be there? And what I want to do is give you some specificity, some focus, some clarity. And it begins with these questions. Where are you in life? Where do you want to be in life? Because I'm assuming that where you are is not where you ultimately want to be. Because none of us have really arrived. We're still living life on levels and arriving in stages. We're moving down roads and pathways. So where do you want to be in life? It's a question that you need to answer. And here's a powerful question to go with that. So where are you in life? Where do you want to be in life? And you need to be specific. Specificity is the basis for cooperation. The more specific you are, the more life will cooperate with you. If you're ambiguous, life is going to be ambiguous. The question is, what do you want? And if you can't be clear and accurate and specific, then how can life help you? How can life answer that question? It's a question that I ask my wife when we're thinking about dinner. I say, I ask her, what do you want to eat? She says, something good. <laughs> I say, that doesn't help me. <laughs> I hope whatever you choose will be good, but I need to know what you choose. She says, I don't know what I want, but it's got to be good. <laughs> so soon she knows the quality of what she wants, but she doesn't know what she wants. So then, as any good husband, I go down to a list. Do you want Chinese food, Italian food, soul food, American cuisine? And then I list all of the fast food restaurants. Do you want Cheesecake Factory? No, 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 no. Then what do you want? Something good. It's been 50 years. And she's been consistent. She wants something good. But what is that? Where are you? Where do you want to be? Third question, and this is important. Why? Do you want to be there? You've got to know your why. Because your why becomes powerful. 
Your why becomes the motivator. Your why gets you up out of the bed, gets you off the couch. Your why will cause you to burn the midnight oil, to go the extra mile. Your why will push you beyond your limits. People burn out not because of what they do, but because they forget why they're doing it. Your why is powerful. It energizes you. It strengthens you when you feel weak and tired. It reminds you of your commitment and why you're committed. So where are you? Where do you want to be? But also, why do you want to be there? Make sure you refine that why. Make that why powerful. Because you're going to reach to draw strength from that why when you're feeling discouraged or weak. Remembering your why empowers you again, revitalizes you, restores your strength in times of challenges. And number four, the fourth question, what do you have to do to get there? Where are you? So you have a marker, a starting place, starting point. Where do you want to be? Why do you want to be there? And what do you have to do to get there? And those four questions you will ask again and again and again throughout your life. You must, because life is quite different today. You know, there was one time you got a job and you worked that job. That was your career for the rest of your life. Now people are changing not only jobs, but changing careers. Because life is moving faster and people are living longer. In 1900 in the United States, life expectancy was 45 years old. That's all, just 45. People live longer, but the average life expectancy in 1900 in the U.S. was 45 years old. So you had midlife crisis when you were 20. <laughs> you laugh, but I'm going to tell you something else, right? So do you understand why people were making decisions early in life? People were getting married, 15, 16 years old, starting families. They were concerned about doing as much as they can because they didn't have much life to deal with. 45 years, not a long time. And you would think that 2000, which brought a greater life expectancy in the United States, people would be happy because the life expectancy in 2000 in the United States, it's gone down a little bit since then, but in 2000, the life expectancy in the United States was 89 years old for men and 92 years old for women. Why women live longer? I don't know. There's a lot of things about men and women that I think are not fair, but... 92, 89... And you would think the generation that now lives and sees that life expectancy, wow, that's great. But the millennials are being depressed by that. 
Instead of saying, life's too short, I don't have enough time, now they're saying, life's too long, what am I going to do with all that time? With instability and, and volatility in life and making money and everything, they're trying to figure out, what do I do? And let me tell you, I, I got married when I was 19. So if your life expectancy is 92 and you get married when you're 19, you're going to be with the same person <laughs> for a long time. And that's why millennials are getting married in their 30s. Starting families in their 30s, if they get married, and if they start families, things have changed. Millennials are terrified by the length of life ahead of them, because they're saying, my God, I'm struggling now. So they have something new. Midlife crisis is still around, takes place in your 40s and 50s, but now they have something called quarter-life crisis. And that happens in your 20s. What are you doing in crisis in your 20s? Well, the crisis is moving from school and academic environment, sheltered by parents and home and family, moving from an academic environment into the workplace, into real life, becomes a traumatic experience. It becomes a crisis, a transition, because in school, everything is clear. The goals are clear, the pathway is clear, the support is clear, and then you leave that and you get into the real world. Now, you've got a thousand possibilities, a thousand options, and you're overwhelmed because you have so many options. No longer are things clear. No longer are the goals clear and the pathway clear. And the structure clear. Now you're facing life. And millennials are going through crisis. Quarter life crisis. And if you have a quarter life crisis, can you imagine what your midlife crisis is going to be like? But that's the real world in which we live and that we're wrestling with today. And millennials are asking questions. Millennials, and, and, and you know, you would think that millennials are, are, the profile of millennials are just in America, but it's global. It doesn't matter what country, the millennial profile is the same. It could be in Asia, Africa, South America, Europe, the United States. The profile is the same. Why? Because millennials talk to each other globally. Social media. They capture a moment, memorialize it, and send it around the world. They can talk. They can interact with people far, far away from them and share their feelings. Millennials have removed the stigma of mental health because they tend to access therapists more than any other generation. In my generation... If you, and I'm saying this with sensitivity, if we were sitting down having lunch and during the course of our conversation, you said to me, yeah, I was talking to my therapist the other day, I would say, check please. <laughs> Why? Because the whole idea of someone having a mental health problem and having it addressed was taboo and stigma in the society. 
Millennials have no problem saying that. Yeah, I was seeing my therapist. Yeah, I need help. So they've removed the stigma, which is a good thing. It's a good thing that now we can talk about it openly and not be afraid. The bad thing about it is that so many of them need a therapist. They're the most educated generation in history. They're one of the largest generations in history since my generation, the baby boomers. They're the most educated. They tend to have the highest rate of unemployment because that education is not translating into viable income and jobs. And whatever jobs they get, they don't, they're not making the kind of money that they expected to make. And then they have the self-esteem issues because we told millennials, you are great, you are wonderful, you can be whatever you want, you can do whatever you want, have whatever you want, you are blessed by God, you've got a purpose, now go out there and get it. They go out there, there's nothing there. <laughs> so they come home. They come home to live. 37% of millennial females live with their parents. 42% males live with their parents. And it's not because they want to, it's for economic reasons. So we're now supporting a generation that is having trouble launching. The economy, technology, all of these things come into play and shaping a generation and shaping the way they think. And that's why who or what informs your self-esteem, your worldview, your vision of the future is critical. And that's why we have peop as people of faith are informed by God, by the scripture, by our faith. Because that remains consistent in outlook regardless of changes in culture, changes in technology, changes in the economy. It elevates us to transcend those things. Amen? So let's talk a little bit more about these things. And let me frame it this way. What informs your self-esteem, your self-worth, your worldview, your vision of the future, how you see life. God has called us to a life of clarity. I want you to get these words. Purpose. Intentionality. and realism. God has called us, called you. Remember when he came to see Adam, he called Adam. He called to them. It's always a calling. Amen? So God has called us to a life of, number one, Clarity. Say it with me. Number one, clarity. He's called us to a life of clarity. He's called us to a life of purpose. He called us to a life of intentionality. 
And he's called us to a life of realism. And I'll explain each one of these because they're very, very important. Because you're going to use this to frame and inform the way you think about life and about your future. And let me tell you something. In God, the future is always great. We may not understand how he unfolds that future and how he blesses us and brings his goodness to pass. Sometimes we get puzzled. Amen? But we know that no matter what, the circumstance or situation, God is consistently good. God is good. So God has called us to a life of clarity. By clarity, I mean a life that is free from ambiguity. God does not want us to be confused about our life. Doesn't want you to be confused. He wants your life to be easily understood. Let me tell you something. Life is complicated enough. You don't have to make it worse. And some people complicate things. They take the simplest thing and they make it so complicated. No. Simplicity. Simplicity is the key. Every complexity has its origin in simplicity. I'll say it again. Every complexity has its origin in simplicity. So even the most complex problem, you want to reduce it to simplest terms. Let me zero in. Let's, let's, it's, it's this big. Let's shrink it down. You want clarity. You want clarity. You want a life that's free from ambiguity. And you don't want things or people in your life to complicate it. Life is complicated enough. And you shouldn't be complicating your own life. Some people complicate their own life. Most people, unfortunately, are spiritually, morally, and ethically ambiguous. They're not sure. They're not specific. They're not clear. Clarity is the first law of learning. You're not going to learn unless things are clear. When the Bible says write the vision and make it plain, what does it say? Clarify it. Remove all ambiguities. Make it clear. Because it's only when it's clear that people can take it and run with it. He's called you to a life of clarity. Many of our problems in life come from a lack of clarity. And you know, we've got bad habits. We don't, we don't wait to get all the instruction or all the information. You ever give instruction to someone and they're already walking away from you to go do what you ask them to do without fully listening to what you ask them to do? It's amazing. I, and I stopped them. I said, wait, 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 where are you going? I'm going to do what you asked me to do. I'm not finished asking you. How do you know you'll come back with half of it? Yeah, because we got to go. We want to do but we're not willing to establish the patience necessary for clarity. Clarity takes time. It takes patience. And we live in an impatient society. I heard the attention span is seven seconds. <laughs> Many of the problems you have in life is because you lack clarity. 
That's why those questions, where am I? Where do I want to be? Why do I want to be there? What do I have to do to get there? Those questions produce clarity. Specificity is the basis for cooperation. It's true with people. The more specific you are with people, the greater their cooperation. They can't cooperate if they're not sure what you want. Too often, leaders, bosses, supervisors are not clear to their team, to their employees, to their staff. And as a result of a lack of clarity, the staff goes out and try to figure out what is demanded of them, what is desired of them. And they come back with the wrong thing, and the boss says, that's not what I wanted you to do, but you didn't tell me. You weren't clear. You weren't specific. I need specificity. Clarity means clearly defined needs, clearly defined wants, clearly defined desires, clearly defined goals, clearly defined objectives. What do you want to eat? Something good. That's not good enough. Amen? So what do I do at home? I will go out, buy whatever, bring it back. She'll look at it. I don't want that. <laughs> but I'll eat it. Thank you for getting me something. And I say, I hope it's good. <laughs> clarity. God has called us to a life of clarity. Amen? You want to be clear. Stop and ask. Can you clarify that for me? Can you be more specific for me? Ask yourself. Are your goals clear? Is your objective clear? You say you have needs. Are you clear on what those needs are? Otherwise, you'll be all over the place. And it's difficult for life to cooperate with you if you're not clear. Amen? Man came to Jesus. Jesus asked him, what do you want? The man said, if you're willing, you can heal me. But notice what Jesus asked. What do you want? He knew what the man's need was, but he wanted the man to articulate it. Specificity. Came to another man and asked the man who was sick, who was crippled. He said, he said Jesus said, do you want to be healed? Simple, simple question. The man said, well, you see, uh, an angel comes, troubles the water, and the first one in gets healed, and I don't have anybody to put me in there. Jesus didn't ask him all that. He didn't ask him, why haven't you been healed yet? He asked him, do you want to be healed? And we can get caught up in the circumstance and situation, and we can regurgitate it over and over because it's so taken hold of us that it informs the way we think that we can't even hear properly. When the answer comes, when the healing comes, when the deliverance comes, we can't even hear it because the circumstance and situation has created a filter that filters out the very answer when it appears. Clarity. Be clear. 
and what you want. Amen? We can talk more about that, but we don't have time. God's called us to a life of purpose. Purpose. And let me say this. Purpose is not static. Purpose is not that one thing that you do and then you've satisfied your reason for existing. No. Suppose you do it at age 25. What do you do? Die and go to heaven? You no longer have a reason to exist? No. Purpose is not static. Purpose is dynamic. We live life on levels. We arrive in stages. You have an overall purpose. And as you move through life, how you apply that purpose changes. But the purpose remains consistent. I'm a shepherd. I'm a teacher. In the first part of my ministry, I was a shepherd to a congregation. My next level of life, I became shepherd to the community that the church was in. My next level of life, I became shepherd to the city that I was in. My next level of life, I came, became shepherd to the state that I was in. My next level of life, I became shepherd to the nation that I was in. My next level of life, I'm shepherding nations around the world. A shepherd gives guidance, instruction, wisdom, experience, knowledge. A shepherd mentors, and I'm doing that globally. So my purpose has remained the same, but how it's being applied has changed as I move from one level of life to another. And so it is with you. Amen? Purpose is your raison d'etre, your reason for being. Why are you here? And how do you discover that? I'm glad you asked. Identify your gift, talents, and abilities because what God's gifted you to do, he's called you to do. And what he's called you to do, he's gifted you to do. So you are designed in a certain way. You are fitted for a purpose. And purpose is not something you decide. Purpose is something you discover. God already decided that for you. And he wired you, designed you, fitted you for the purpose that he's already decided you are best for. Aristotle said at the intersection of uh, where your gift, talents, and abilities meet a human need, you will discover your purpose. So your purpose is not just for you. It's for meeting a need. It is for a contribution to the common good that I was talking about last night. Purpose restrains our desire for instant gratification. We are a very impatient society. Everything is microwave. Fast food takes too long. We want everything now. And with Amazon, you know, they're sending drones to drop off your package. Everything is instant. You know, buy with one click. Everything is there. Funny how language changes. When I was in school, Amazon was a place in a jungle in South America. <laughs> you say Amazon to a millennial today, what are you ordering? <laughs> Purpose restrains our desire for instant gratification. It teaches you delayed gratification. That's very important because life has to be built 
over time. God's called you to a life of purpose. If you don't have your own purpose in life, others will use you to fulfill their purpose. I'm going to try that one more time. If you don't have your own purpose in life, others will use you to achieve and fulfill their purpose. And I don't mind being used as long as it's mutually beneficial. If it's one way, that's a problem. But if we both benefit, then that's good. So if you don't have your own purpose in life, others will use you to fulfill their purpose. Purpose gives us direction and commitment to what we want to do with our lives. We need purpose. And God's called you to a life of purpose. God's called us to a life of intentionality. And I don't want to spend too much time on this, each of these. God's called us to a, a life of intentionality, living with aim, living with goals, living with objectives, designing your life around your purpose. Being intentional. Be intentional with your relationships. I don't give serious time to casual people. I'm going to try that one more time. I don't give serious time to casual people. I give serious time to serious people. I judge relationships now based on maintenance. And if a relationship is going to be high maintenance, I have to consider whether I want to commit to high maintenance. And some people are high maintenance. Amen? Don't point, but amen? Some people require a lot of time, attention, energy, and, and you know, I, I have someone in my life like that for 50 years. And I'm good with that. I'm okay. But I don't want 30 people like that. That's why I love the Bible says, husband of one wife. I don't see how people can have more than one wife. It's work. It's intentionality. Amen? Yeah, but you have to think about relationships because what happens is if a relationship is high maintenance and you enter that relationship and you can't keep up with it, then there's disappointment, resentment, anger, hurt. And it's your fault. So I, I say, you know what, um, I, maybe someone else can help you. <laughs> Smile when you say it. Maybe someone else can help you. How many understand what I'm talking about? So you, you have to judge because time is precious. So we have to be intentional with our time, intentional with our objectives, our goals, designing our life around purpose. Be intentional with everything you do. And let me tell you something. Even work, play. Be intentional. When you work, work. Don't work thinking about playing. When you play, play. 
Don't play thinking about work. When you play, be intentional. People are, what are you doing? I'm playing. That's it. I am playing. <laughs> if you're working, I am working. But too many people, when they're working, they're thinking about playing, vacation, taking time off. And how many understand what I'm talking about? And then when they take the vacation, they're thinking about work back at the office. <laughs> That's crazy. That's stressful. We have enough anxiety. Life is complicated enough. Amen? Shut it down. Learn to turn it off. And that's a discipline because it's difficult. We stay connected all the time, 24 hours. And we send texts at 3 o'clock in the morning, emails. And we say, well, I didn't expect you to be up to read it. I figured you'd get a chance early in the morning when you get up. You can read it when you want to. We just had to get it off of our own chest. Get rid of it. Amen? Yeah, but that's the way we think because we're so connected. We've got to learn to turn it off and shut it down. Be intentional in your relationship with yourself. Some people have a bad relationship with themselves. They don't like themselves. You need to clear that up as soon as possible. You know why you need to clear up your relationship with yourself and have a good relationship with yourself? Because at the end of the day, you're all you got. So if you're struggling with you, you're struggling with all you got. Have a good relationship with yourself. Amen? Yeah, some people don't like themselves. And you got to stop and ask why. Is it because you're comparing yourself to someone else? Is it because you're trying to measure up to something that you shouldn't be measuring up to or someone that you shouldn't be measuring up to? Who are you? Who are you? Be comfortable with who you are because that becomes a foundation for you to build on, to work with. Look in the mirror and say, okay, you're all I got. Let's work with you. (laughs) Be happy. (laughs) Too many people look in the mirror. I don't like you. (laughs) I can't work with you. (laughs) That's all you got. Be intentional in your relationship with people. Be intentional in your relationship with money. Some people are not intentional with their money. They're very carefree, careless, and money-free, which means they don't have any. (laughs) Some people have a bad relationship with their money. That's why their money doesn't stay with them. It's always looking to leave. I think you get that. Be intentional with your time. Time is a valuable commodity. How you spend your time. Who you spend your time with. What you spend your time on. Be intentional with your time. Be intentional with things. Be intentional with experiences. And experiences are important because what you remember in life are not the things. What you remember in life are the experiences. Create memories from those experiences that you cherish and you reflect on. When my children and grandchildren, we get together for Christmas, it's quite a large group of people, but we get together, we eat, we celebrate Christmas or Thanksgiving, all right, or or Easter, 
and we get together, we have these family dinners several times a year, and what's the conversation? The conversation is not about the things that they got when they were growing up, but the memories of experiences that they had. That's what they talk about. They don't talk about the toys. Oh, remember when we got that little truck? No. Remember when we went here, when we did this, when we did that? It's the memories, the experiences. That's what lasts a lifetime. Too often we're too busy giving things. No, let's give some memories. Give experiences. Amen? And realism. Let me talk about realism real quick because realism simply means accepting the facts of life. Accepting reality. God never called us. And, you know, we have to be careful because we are people of faith. We believe in faith. We walk by faith and not by sight. Amen? And the Bible says we call the things that are not as though they are. But we twist that up and we call the things that are, are as though they're not. We don't deny the realities of life. We have to make room in our theology for suffering for disappointment, for change, for conflict, for tension, because these are the realities of living in this world. Jesus put it this way, in the world you will have tribulation. He said, be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. Yeah, but you're still going to have tribulation. God's called us to a life of realism, to be honest, to be realistic about the challenges of life. Life is paradox. It's both threat and promise. With opportunity comes opposition. With good comes evil. When I would do good, evil is present. Those are the realities of life. We can't bury our head in the sand and say, no, 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 no. The wonderful testimony that was shared by Cindy and Danny, all right, they were dealing with the realities of life. It was an opportunity for them to exercise their faith. That's what it's about. Faith needs problems. I'll let that marinate. No problems, no need for faith. Amen? Faith needs opposition, challenges, tension, conflict, suffering. Faith needs that. Faith needs... To give substance to the power and presence of God in response to a need, to a situation, to a circumstance. And that's why God doesn't take away the problems of our life. He calls us to use our faith. Again and again, Jesus said, O ye of little faith. You've got to make room in your theology because if you don't make room in your theology for realism and the realities of life, when they happen, you're going to be shocked, you're going to be disappointed, you're going to be discouraged, and you may not recover. There are people who don't have room in their theology for the realities of life. They live in what I call la-la land, you know. The realities in life. For the first three years, my wife and I were married. We tried to have children. 
we wanted to start a family right away. And for those three years, she struggled. She went to the doctors, and she went through uh, different, you know, uh, tests and everything. And her gynecologist found that she had a cyst on her ovaries the size of a grapefruit. And uh, so that was the, the first three years. The third year, we got saved. We gave our life to Christ. She went to a church service, and there was a prayer line to receive and experience what they call the baptism of the Holy Spirit. This was new to us. We didn't know about all this stuff. We were learning. So she gets online, and she's prayed for. She comes home. She's sick. I said, why are you so sick? She said, I was online being prayed for. I said, you don't get prayed for and get sick. You get prayed to be no longer sick. <laughs> she said, I don't know. I got sick. I said, wow. So it stayed with her for a few days. You know, and we were, we were young Christians at the time, so we were wondering, maybe we shouldn't get on those prayer lines. <laughs> she had to go to the doctor. So she went to her doctor. Doctor checked her out. He said, you're okay. She said, but I have all these symptoms. She said, those are the symptoms you get when you're pregnant. She started crying. She came home. It was our first child. We were so excited. Nine months later, oh, well, no, yeah, a little bit, a little less than nine months later, all right, that same doctor who diagnosed a cyst on her ovaries delivered our firstborn son by cesarean section. And when he took out our son, the cyst was gone. And he couldn't explain it. We knew that it was God. After three years of trying, three years of trying, he brought his miracle. You have to have a set of values. What informs those values? I gave four of nine. I don't have time. Do I? I don't have time. We're out of time, right? Yeah, we're always out of time. Yeah. I was going to give... Ooh, that's good. Ooh, that's good. Sorry. Uh, he's trying to figure out five minutes, two minutes, one minute. You know, it's... One more. One value. One value? One value, one minute. One minute or one value? It's one. One value. Okay, okay. Okay. So I gave my four core values, faith, family, education, and community, but also industry and some other things as well. But let me, let me talk about faith because your faith must inform your worldview. Your faith must inform your self-esteem. Tomorrow I'm going to talk about self-esteem in the image of God and what that really means, and we want to unpack that, all right? But your faith is how you understand, and, and, and you have to have a clearly articulated biblical worldview, a clearly articulated 
biblical worldview. I'm going to give you a clearly articulated biblical worldview. You don't have to go to Bible college for this. You don't have to go to seminary. I'm going to make it easy for you. You ready? This is the A.R. Bernard two-minute course. Okay? Look, worldview, our worldview as Christians, simple. Creation, the fall, redemption, consummation. I did that in 10 seconds. And you don't have to be a deep Bible student to understand all this. Creation, right? The fall, redemption, consummation. Creation simply says, and for us, all right, because if you read the first chapter of Genesis, after everything that God made, what did he say? God saw that it was good. God saw that it was what? Good. Everything he made. And when he made humanity, he said it was very good. Everything was very good. So, here's some theology. There was a beginning, and it was good. Got that? There was a good beginning. We could talk about details. Was it seven days? Was it, was it uh, 6,000 years ago? Uh, we could talk about all of that. All right? But bottom line is, it was a good beginning. That's creation. It was a good beginning. Got it? It was a good beginning. The fall. Something went wrong. This is deep, isn't it? The fall. Something went wrong. We could talk about what went wrong, how it went wrong, what the implications are. We could talk about all that. But the reality it still is something went wrong. Amen? Redemption. Redemption is what? Restoration. Restoration. The process of restoring things back to being good. Consummation. Perfection, the completion of the restoration process. Where are we? We are in the redemption part. We are in the process of things being restored back to the good. We're experiencing God's goodness. Amen? We have a responsibility for the common good. Amen? We have a responsibility for our own spiritual, moral, and material welfare. We have our, our responsibility for the spiritual, moral, and material welfare of society. That's a, just a window worldview, all right? Your worldview has to answer three questions. The truth about God. That's important. The truth about God. Number true. Number two. Number true. Yeah. <laughs> That's good. Number true, the tooth, the tooth. Number two, the truth about what it means to be human. Very important. I'm going to talk about that tomorrow. The truth about what it means to be human. And why I say that is because everything can't be true. And there's so many truth claims. And we live in a world where Everybody has their truth. There's your truth. There's my truth. No, truth is not subjective. Truth is objective and transcendent and absolute and eternal and unchangeable. Everything can't be true. Because if everything's true, there's no such thing as a lie. And I've been lied to. Truth is exclusive. So the truth about God, 
the truth about what it means to be human. What does that mean? And thirdly, the truth about what it means to live in this world. Because some people are confused about what it means to live in this world. And we see the tension, the violence, the aggression. We see all of the conflict around us because people are not sure what that means. It is our faith that gives us our values. Our sense of purpose that guides our lifestyle. It is our faith that tells us that God is the source, creator, designer, sustainer, judge, and sovereign of life. I'll say it again. It is our faith that tells us that God is the source, creator, designer, sustainer, judge, and sovereign of life. He's the source of everything. Everything comes from God. We believe that. We thrive on that. Last time I was here, I said to you four things. Number one, God loves you. Number two, God created you for a purpose. Number three, God designed you for achievement and fulfillment. Number four, God believes in you. That's what informs us. That's what informs our self-esteem, our self-worth, our value. That's what informs us about people, how we should treat people. That's what informs us about the world, the way the world should work. All of that comes from our Christian faith. And where other people are being informed in other ways, what informs us is our Christian faith. We've been called to a wonderful life, a blessed life. Jesus came and sacrificed so that we can have life and that we might might have it more abundantly. But it must be a life of clarity, purpose, intentionality, and realism. Amen? Did you get anything out of that today? Hallelujah. I want to give you tools. You've got to listen to this again and again. One sitting is not enough. You'll get more and more out of it time. So I've got to give you enough that you can chew on for a year. Amen? But you have to have the tools. You're only as good as the tools in your tool chest. Amen? Come on, let's all stand. I want to pray over you. Some people are preachers. I'm a teacher. Line upon line, precept upon precept. Here a little, there a little. Amen? And that's the word of the Lord to us so that we can grow in wisdom, in knowledge, in understanding. That was Paul's prayer. That the spirit of wisdom, knowledge, and understanding would rest upon the people of God. Let's bow our heads. Father, I thank you for this church that you established, established on Jesus Christ, the rock of our salvation. Thank you for the strength that you've placed within it, the glory that rests upon it, and the future that is so filled with your glory and the blessings that will come upon it 
because they're committed to you and committed to the vision of this house. Lord, let the words spoken under the anointing of your Holy Spirit pierce every heart, saturate every mind, so that we can indeed live it out in a successful life. We look forward to the abundant life that you've called us to. And we thank you for the deposit you made in our hearts and minds tonight. We embrace it. We will water it with prayer and practice. We bless you and thank you. In Jesus' precious name, amen and amen. Come on, give God a good hand. Clap offering. City Harvest, thank you for your time and attention. And that's the end of this week's podcast. We'd love to hear your thoughts. Email us at connect at chc.org.sg 